0: A few leftover dad jokes from Father's Day, so I had to had to get that up. Uh, open your Bibles again, if you would, to uh, Galatians chapter five. We're going to pick up as uh, as Zach said uh, where Brother Renee left off. I'm not going to read the passage yet. We're going to walk through it together toward the end, but I I, I want to highlight a middle section here that I think is uh, is a section that we kind of take for granted, or a a section that we kind of think we know what it means, but I want to suggest this morning that maybe we don't understand it fully in its context. I'm a little intimidated to speak on this because uh, Brother Gary Scott said last night how much he wanted to preach on this text, and then again this morning he told me he was jealous that I got to preach on this text, and I thought, oh no, there's a right way to preach this text, and I may not have it. But we'll see if I'm ever invited back again, if I handle this text correctly. We know verses uh, 22 and 23, the uh, deeds of the, uh, the, the works of, the, or the fruit of the spirits, rather. And we contrast that with the deeds of the flesh. Verses 16 and 17 is the part that I think we sometimes remove from the context of which we have been centered In the last couple of days, verse 16, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. My guess is most of us think in terms here of flesh being our sinful nature, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. And I'm going to try to persuade you that that's not, that doesn't go far enough in the context. It's not as simple as this battle. We love, maybe love is not the right word, we take some comfort in this idea of the flesh being sinful nature. Because we all know the struggle we have against temptation. Right? Anybody here not sinned in the last month? I should put my hand down. Anybody not sinned in the last week? We're spirit filled people, right? We're new covenant believers. Why do we still sin? We know there's the temptations that come, and we give in to those temptations. And we easily gravitate toward this theology that we still have a sinful nature the battle of the spirit against the flesh. Uh, Theologians have been discussing for generations. What that, what that is? What is this flesh? We are new creatures in Christ. The old man is gone. The old man is dead, we are told. Well, what does Paul mean? Then we talk about the flesh battling the spirit. It's been described in different ways. Uh, some guys say, well, we still have the flesh, we still have the spirit, and whichever one you feed, there are like two dogs inside you, and whichever one you feed, that's the one that has, has control over you. And most of us reject that and say, no, no, that old man is dead. I think it was Augustine. I think he's the one who said, Yeah, the old man is dead, but he's still chained to us. And so we drag him along through life by the power of the Spirit, and he's dead, but he still weighs us down at times. I don't like that imagery either, because it seems to me like when the scripture says that old man is dead, it means he's dead. And we are new. We have the new heart. That's one of the great promises of the new covenant. God says, I'm going to take out that old heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He doesn't say, and you're going to have that old heart of stone chained to you for the rest of your life. He says, I'm going to give you a new spirit, my spirit. So what does Paul mean here by flesh if he doesn't mean our sinful nature? I think he means the old Covenant Jew his sinful nature under the law. I think he's not talking about our spiritual makeup predominantly. He's talking about the two eras that we've been discussing. The era of the flesh or the law or the old covenant and the era of the new covenant in Christ. And he's saying you do not belong to that old covenant era of the flesh, if you are in the spirit, so don 't act like you belong to that old covenant era. I think he means the same thing here that he means in Romans chapter seven. Romans seven is another one of those very controversial passages. I understand even among new covenant guys it 's uh, controversial. I would love to walk you through the uh, the true new covenant tra- uh, interpretation, but i won 't take all of that time, but I do want to highlight. Two verses that I believe summarize is Paul's view here. Romans 7, verse 5, speaking of the Jews. Remember, he starts chapter 7 saying, to those who know the law. I'm talking about Jews here, those who know the law. And he gives that illustration that the law is binding as long as you're alive he compares it to a wife who she is bound to submit to her husband as long as he's alive. And she can't go out, she can't step out on him. If he's alive, the law of marriage requires her to be faithful. If she does so, if she steps out on him while he's alive, while the law is intact, then she's an adulteress. But if he dies, then she is free now to marry somebody else. Because the relationship of her to the law is gone. That obligation to her husband is gone because he's dead. It's in that context, talking to Jews, in verse 5 he says, For while we were, what? In the flesh. While we Jews were in the flesh. Implying we are no longer in the flesh seems to me. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members of our body to bear fruit for death, but now we have been released from the law. Do you see the parallel there between being in the flesh and being bound to the law of Moses? He's relating those two. And what happens to the Jew who is under the law, the Jew who does not have the Spirit of God? He has the sins aroused. The law did not produce righteousness. It simply told the Jew or, or provoked the Jew to sin. We, we all know how this works. Any of you who've had kids knows how this works. You tell the kid, do not go into that room. And now what can they not stop thinking about? What's in the room? I want to get to that room. The command aroused sin. That's what the law did for the Jews. And notice the connection being in the flesh. Verse 6, now we've been released from the law, having died to that which, by which we were bound, so that we may serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What I want you to draw here is that parallel. In the flesh and under the law. You see that? It's the same thing that he does in Galatians. He's already made that parallel in chapter 3. Verse 1, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing faith? So the first line is, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the what? The flesh. Do you see the parallel again between law and flesh? Paul's drawing that connection constantly. We saw it in Brother Rene's section. Ishmael, the flesh, the doing things in human strength. He compares that. He uses that to describe those who were of Hagar and Sinai, the old covenant. So why? Why does Paul do that? Why does he spend so much time correlating being under the law with this word flesh? Because the Judaizers wanted Christians to become circumcised. And where is circumcision done? It's done in the flesh. Let me read a few verses from Genesis chapter 17, where Abraham is first given this, this uh, circumcision requirement. Back in chapter uh, 17 of Genesis, verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. That was verse 10. Verse 11 says, And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin." Verse 12, and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout their generations, a servant who is born in the house, and so on. Verse 13, a servant who is born in your house or is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. The Greek word in the Septuagint is the same word he uses in Galatians and Romans. It's the word sarx goes on, talks about Sarah being going to conceive and so on. Verse 23, then Abraham took Ishmael his son, all the servants who were born in his house, all who were bought with his money, every male among them of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Verse 24, now Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh Of his foreskin, verse 25, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In Galatians chapter 6, toward the end of this epistle, verse 13, Paul says, For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised. Why? So that they may boast in your flesh. We see this repeated connection between the physical, in the flesh, mark of the old covenant and this word flesh. And Paul is now putting all of Judaism under the law, everything there in this category of flesh. You see where I'm going with this? He's not, the, the word flesh does not connote simply our sinful nature. It has a very specific history of redemption connection with a Jew under the Old Covenant. It's going to be important to understand the flow of the argument through chapter 5. So let's back up to verse 1 then and pick up where Brother Renee left off. Christ set us free. That is the main clause of verse 1. Hallelujah, huh? Christ set us free for, or to, freedom. He just used that that allegory that uh, Brother Rene described so well. Don't go to the old covenant. You were slaves. Don't go now to a new form of slavery. It's where he says here, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to yoke of slavery. So these Galatians were enslaved to those things which by nature are not gods. They've been freed from that slavery. They've lived here in, in the freedom of Christ and now the Jews come along and say yes, yes, yes Paul, was, Paul told you half the story he told you how, how to believe in Jesus Jesus the Messiah, that's all great but he didn't tell you the whole story He he borrowed Brother Scott's analogy. Like, you can't just come in halfway. You've got to get the whole story. But they used it the other side. Look, we're coming to you, and Paul's told you about Jesus, but there's this whole thing back here, what we call the, the law, the Torah. Jesus didn't show up in a vacuum. Jesus himself was a Jew. And Jesus, he's the one who said, not one jot or tittle will pass away from the law. So if you really want to please God... You have to be circumcised and you have to submit yourself to God's law, the law of Moses. And Paul, who's had it up to here with this, as we've seen, you all have seen over and over again, says, if you do that, you're leaving this slavery of paganism for a new slavery. Renee did a great job. Imagine, Paul is a Jew, was a Jew. And now listen to how he describes that old covenant law. It enslaves you. There's no freedom there. What does it do? It arouses sinful passions so you will be condemned. It cannot bring righteousness. Do not go there, he says. Stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. Do not place yourself under this yoke of slavery. I don't think he uses the word yoke on accident. If you want some, some uh, edifying reading one of these days, go back and read Deuteronomy 28. Does anybody know what's in Deuteronomy 28? The, blessing the blessings and cursings of the Old Covenant. In two of my seminary classes, I read chapter 28 in their entirety to our students. It is a sobering, sobering passage. Moses begins by saying, God's covenant says if you obey... I will bless you when you come in. I will bless you when you go out. Everything you put your hand to, I will bless. It sounds like heaven on earth. It's wonderful. And that lasts for a few verses or so. And then you can almost hear the somber music come in that tense moment of the movie when now the whole tone changes and he begins to repeat what God will do if you don't keep every one of his commandments. And the the phrase that just grabs me every time I read it Moses says, God says this, just as I rejoiced to make you prosper, I will rejoice to make you perish. Sober words. The the covenant was severe. Keep all my statutes, or else. And in that context, God says, I will put a yoke of iron on your necks and drag you into slavery. Remember the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15? Peter stands up before the assembly, and he gives his testimony of how the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And he says to his fellow Jewish brothers there, Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of these Gentile brothers that neither we nor our fathers could bear? This heavy iron yoke that the law was on the necks of the people, of the Jewish people. I think Paul uses that word on purpose. Why would you Galatians who are free in Christ submit yourselves to this yoke of slavery that will weigh you down and destroy you? You've been freed. Don't go to another form of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. You are here now in this category of forgiveness in the Messiah Jesus. If you go back over here and you receive circumcision and you now place yourself in this realm, Jesus, who's over there, has nothing to offer you. He has nothing to offer you. He came to free people from this realm. If you go back there, you don't get the benefits. Of- and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law, every jot and tittle. You read Deuteronomy 28 and all the other law passages of the Old Testament, and God says it over and over again, keep all my statutes, observe all my commandments. You must do it all if you're going to be declared righteous by the law. That's really bad news, because nobody can, and nobody has, save the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't pick and choose. You circumcise, you place yourself under that covenant, you are obligated to keep all of it. You have been severed from Christ. You are, who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Again, he's not talking about personal backsliding here. We use that phrase sometimes in Christian circles, fall from grace, for a person who's gotten into, a Christian who's gotten into some sin. That's not the point. He's again saying, here's this realm of, oh, it's over here, I keep slipping on you. Here's this realm of forgiveness in Christ. If you go over here, you are cut off from the saving work of Jesus Christ and you're back under law. You have fallen from grace. Grace is this realm which Jesus brought and you've fallen back into condemnation under the law. Two realms, those are the only options. Don't go there. Stay over here where you are. For we are, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. You can't be justified by that law because you can't keep it. We are waiting for that day when we will stand before the tribunal of Christ and he says, not guilty. I cannot wait for that day. I know my sin. You know your sin. We know, we, we, we take it by faith that we are forgiven, but oh, to hear the judge of the universe actually say the words, not guilty. Can't wait for that day. That's our hope, righteousness because of Christ. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. This is a Jew. This is a Pharisee of Pharisees making this statement. He was rising to the top. The sky was the limit for his advance in Judaism. And now he's saying the mark on your body is irrelevant to God. Can you imagine? What matters? Faith. Working. Not the works of the law, but working through love. Anticipating where he's going shortly. Then his pastor's heart, his, his shepherd's heart comes out again that we've already seen. You were running well. You were living in the freedom of Christ. You were walking in truth. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls. I'm sure Brother Gary George covered this in chapter 1, but just to refresh your memory. Verse 6, he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. I'm astonished that God who called you, that you're so quickly abandoning that. And now he's saying this persuasion to go back to the law, that is not coming from the one who called you. That's not from God. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, using a very common Jewish metaphor there. This teaching that is weaving its way through the Galatian churches, all it takes is a little to destroy everything. It's not from God. "'I have confidence in you, in the Lord, (laughs) that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is.'" So, you remember, uh, in those days, unlike our day, I mean, I'm here standing before you live, and people are watching on video. We have the ability to communicate across the world. Our brother, in the last hour, spoke to us from Canada. Praise the Lord for technology. How wonderful. Technology wasn't as advanced in Paul's day. So he wrote this letter, gave it to somebody, and it was delivered to the churches in Galatia. And somebody, the, the pastor, the leader, would stand up, or actually, probably he would sit and the whole congregation would stand. In fact, I kind of like that. Uh, so I could sit and you all would stand for this hour. Uh, and, and it would be read to the whole congregation. So imagine, imagine you're one of the Judaizers, and you're in the congregation. And the pastor stands up before the congregation to read this letter. You are one of those people who have been trying to persuade these Galatians to be circumcised and place themselves under the law of Moses. And the pastor stands up to read this letter from Brother Paul, and he says, "'You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth?' This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you and the Lord that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. you would get a little hot. I'm trying to hide out in the back row, and Paul just called you out. You have been disturbing the church of Jesus Christ, you have been leading them into disobedience to the truth, you are the leaven spreader that is spreading through this church, and you are going to give an account to God someday. He's watching. Brother, and he says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then, that is, if I continued preaching circumcision, the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Paul is saying, I, the Jew of Jews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the guy trained under Gamaliel himself, I no longer preach circumcision. I don't tell anybody to be circumcised and to submit themselves to the law of Moses. If I did, they would stop beating me up everywhere I go. Paul had a rough life. Second half, at least. I mean, when he went into a town, I'm convinced that the first thing he did was to go acquaint himself with the jail warden. And then he went and acquainted himself with the head of the local hospital. Because he knew before his time was up here, he's going to meet both of them. He was beaten up everywhere he went by the Jews. He could have stopped that. He could have had a cushy life. He never had to be beaten up again. All he had to do was preach circumcision. His his M.O. was to go straight to the synagogue, right? You know this from Acts. He'd go straight to the synagogue, and he would start persuading his Jewish brothers that Jesus is the Messiah. And he'd get some people responding. They'd be listening. And then the leaders of the synagogue would say, Wait a minute. These guys are letting go of our traditions. This is going to hit us in the pocketbook and in our leadership. They're going to follow this Jesus guy and Paul. And so they would now turn on Paul and they'd beat him up. How many times was he beaten within an inch of his life with rods or stoned within an inch of his life? Over and over and over again. In fact. I'm going to offer a, a second, uh, another view to uh, to the view about Paul's uh, illness that he re- he talked about earlier. That Rene recapped several of the different options. I don't think it was a physical illness. He says, "I came to you, and it's it's translated here illness." What verse is that? Come on, somebody help me out. Uh, Renee, if you're on, could you just text it to me? Verse 14. 14. Yes, thank you. Starting in verse 13. You know that it was because of a, and it says bodily illness here in the NAS, literally it's weakness in the flesh. I think he came beaten up. He says it was a trial to you. I don't think if he had an eye problem, that would have been a trial to the Galatians. But what would have been a trial is Paul showing up and got beaten up by the Jews and now they're saying, wait a minute. There's a stigma attached to that. You were beaten up for your beliefs? Just like he tells the Philippians, don't be ashamed of me and my chains? Everywhere he went... He was persecuted, bodily harmed for the faith. And he says, I could end all of that in a heartbeat. All I have to do is preach circumcision, and the Jews will leave me alone. In fact, they'll love me. They'll elevate me, and I'll continue my path towards stardom in Judaism. Why am I still being persecuted if I'm still preaching circumcision? I'm not preaching circumcision. That's why they keep beating me up. And then verse 12, he says something that... uh, at least down here in the South, I don't think you'd say in polite company. I wish that those who are troubling you would not stop with the foreskin. He's, he is speaking, he is emotionally wound up in all of this. These guys who want you to be circumcised, who are so zealous for that, I wish they'd take it a little further in their own bodies. Be done with them. Why, verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Now, I'm going to part ways with my brother, Rene, and some of the others uh, here. I'm not using the NIV. If you're using the NIV... Instead of flesh throughout this passage, you have the phrase or the word sinful nature. No? Which one has the sinful nature, the old NIV? And you have which one? And it says flesh? Excellent, excellent. Well, I, I stand corrected on my correction. It's the word flesh here. Verse 13, you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not... And now all of the translations fill in a bunch of words, because the Greek is kind of difficult. Even the NIV inserts the word, your freedom. I mean, even the NAS inserts the word, your freedom, but that's not in the original. You were called a freedom, brothers. Literally, it's only not the freedom for an occasion to the flesh. I don't think he's talking here primarily about sinful nature. That's what we think. You are freed now, so don't indulge your flesh. I don't think that's what he's, what he's getting at. He's saying, you are called to freedom, now don't use that freedom and flip it into something where you're put under the law. That's what he's been talking about all the way along. The flesh, the circumcision, the placing yourself under that enslavement. Don't do that. Rather than that, through love serve one another. Here he uses the verb form of the word slave. You are enslaved, not to the law of Moses, but to love one another. That's the slavery we have. Slavery to Christ, and his love, and his love, love. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. If you go over here, and you take on circumcision, and you place yourself under the law of Moses, what is that law going to provoke in you? Think about the Old Testament people. Think about the Jews of old. What kind of people did the law create? When you think of Old Testament Jews, do you think, man, those people loved and loved and loved? Did they love their enemies? Have you read the Psalms lately? We love some of the psalms, even as new covenant guys. We love some of the psalms, and we pray through the psalms. I don't know. I do. I don't. Do you pray through the psalms? Anybody? What do you do with the imprecatory psalms? Lord, bash the heads of their children on the rocks. That was a sincere prayer by David that that would happen to his enemies. Jesus comes along and says, "Love your enemies," and he didn't start listing examples from the Old Testament. Here's Exhibit A of How to Love Your Enemies. What kind of people did the Old Covenant establish? Were they righteous? Were they holy? They were pretty vicious. There were exceptions, of course, but they were pretty vicious. So he says, verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. That's the kind of person you will become if you place yourself under that old covenant law. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You will not be in that category over here and be like those Old Testament Jews. Walk by the Spirit. Okay, back to our verse then, verse 17. For the flesh, this realm over here, literally is, it opposes the spirit, and the spirit opposes the flesh. These are two realms. Again, don't think of this as a battle raging in you. I don't think that's what he means. These are two realms. The flesh, the Mosaic covenant, circumcision, that opposes the spirit, And the realm of the spirit opposes the realm of the flesh. These two are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things you please. He's going back to what he said in chapter 3. Why the law then? Because of transgression. To provoke more transgression. That's what the guardian did. It slapped them on the wrist constantly. They sin more. Don't touch that door. Don't go in that room. And they did it more and more and more, showing their desperate need of another way of justification. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Again, two realms, Spirit realm, law realm. Which one are you in? If you're in this realm over here, the Spirit, you are not in that realm of the law. The NAS says in verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh, it's the same word he's been using for works all the way through erga, the works of the flesh, or the works provoked by the law, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, And things like these. Again, think back to your Old Testament history. What kind of people did the law produce? Remember Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas? He was the leader of Israel. His sons were serving under his watch. And God was sickened by their wickedness. People would bring their sacrifices to offer to God, and there was a certain amount, there was a certain portion of the sacrifice set aside for the priests. Hophni and Phinehas would say, we don't care what God said. We're sticking our fork in, and we're taking out whatever we want. That wasn't the worst of it. In broad daylight, they were committing sexual sin with women who were there, presumably, to pray at the temple, or at the tent. Sensuality, impurity, immorality was rampant. A few years ago at our church, I made the mistake of leading our church through small group study of the book of Judges. It was a mistake because after you've read the first two or three chapters, you've got the whole book, and it's depressing. Same story over and over and over again. The the people would sin, idolatry, wicked, sexual wickedness. God would judge them, bring a nation to judge them. They would repent, and God would bring a a judge to, to lead them out of that. And then the cycle would start all over again. And all manner of wickedness, the same kind of stuff we're reading here. All the way through the prophets, the prophets would come and renounce the Jews constantly for their evil, for their wickedness. All of these kinds of things immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Of course, we know story. the story. The contract is not even wet. The old covenant. Moses is still up on the hill receiving the Ten Commandments. And what are the Israelites doing? Commandment number one have no other gods before me. Is that hard to understand? Here's what I'm telling you don't have any other gods. I mean, that's pretty simple English, pretty simple Hebrew. Don't have other gods. Number two, don't make any graven images. Pretty simple. You don't have to be a Hebrew scholar. You don't have to go to seminary somewhere to figure out, what does that mean not to have other gods? Well, don't have other gods. What does it mean not to make graven images? Well, Don't carve something into an image and call it God. Moses is up on the hill getting the Ten Commandments, and what are the people of Israel doing? They're carving out this golden calf and saying, that is the God who brought you out of Egypt. They couldn't keep God's commands for a half hour. Idolatry. How many times the prophets come and rebuke the Jews for their idolatry? He called it adultery, spiritual adultery. Sorcery. Remember good old King Saul not getting what he wants from the prophets so go find a sorcerer somebody that can conjure up the spirit of Samuel so he'll tell me what's going on. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions. Read through the New Testament. Remind yourselves of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day. Power hungry hungry evil men. Factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. The prophets again rebuked the Jews constantly for their drinking. And Paul says, and there's more I could list. Things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The stakes couldn't be higher, he says. If you go over here to this realm, and you receive circumcision, then you are obligated to keep the whole law. And what you'll find is that law will provoke in you all of these kinds of sins, and then you cannot and will not inherit the kingdom of God because people who are enslaved to these sins cannot and will not inherit the kingdom of God. The sticks could not be higher. Don't go to the law of Moses. Break free and stay free from that law. Instead, he says, stay over here where God's Spirit reigns. And what kind of man or woman will you be? Well, that Spirit will bear the fruit that only He can bear, and you'll be a man or woman of love. Love. He said earlier, the whole law. You want to keep the law? Great. Love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love. He could almost stop there, couldn't he? I mean, if we just perfected love, do we need any other instructions? You can't just go love more. If you try to just love more in your own strength? You can't do it. We need the Spirit of God to produce His love in us. Joy. We in the New Covenant era, we who are over here, we have to be, we must be, we are joyful people. I'm going to make an assumption here about uh, Brother Sasser that what we saw last night with him and his wife and the other gentlemen, this was just joy as they were singing that song. I, I felt joy watching and listening to you sing that song. All you were missing was a banjo. You know, I'm not a huge country music fan or a bluegrass fan, but there's something about the banjo. You just can't stay in a bad mood when somebody's playing the banjo. I'm not sure there's going to be harps in heaven, literally, but I think there's going to be banjos. There's something, that, there's joy in that. But that we can create those kind of emotions, but the kind of joy the Spirit produces, it's not always. We're not always smiling. We're not always happy. Certainly not happy, clappy. But there is a profound rejoicing even through trials in this realm over here, because the Spirit of God reminds us: Jesus atoned for your sins. You have glory waiting. In the meantime, he's refining you to be like his son. You can rejoice always, not in your circumstances, but in the Lord. And Paul says, I'll say it again, rejoice always in the Lord. When the Spirit of God grabs a hold of somebody, when you live in this realm, your joy is going to increase. When we're struggling to find joy... Think of all the places we are tempted to run for joy. Somebody just give me the right book. Maybe it's food. Music. Therapy. Counselors. Medication. Now, God can use a lot of those things to help us, but... This is talking about the kind of joy that only the Spirit of God produces. I have people come to me all the time. I'm sure those of you who are in church leadership have this too. People come to me and they're struggling and and they want me to refer them to something or someone. I say, well, have you you asked the Spirit of the living God to produce joy in your heart? Have you prayed and sought the Lord in this? No. (laughs) Well, I can't help you And none of those things can help you, ultimately. Only the Spirit of God. And he can and he will. Ask. That's his job. Bring glory to Christ and fill you with his fruit. Peace. Oh, do we need peace in this day? The Spirit of God produces peace. How about patience? You know this, right? You don't pray for patience. I know you don't. Because you're afraid God will give it to you. And when he gives us patience, he always tests that patience. Patience. Kindness. The Jews were not known for their kindness. That's not what falls off the page when we read the the Old Testament or the New Testament, the Gospels. The Jews were not just kind people, but Christians are kind people because the Spirit is producing kindness in us. Goodness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. We are fools when we look out at our world and we just are appalled at the uh, broken relationships and adulteries and those kind of things among a pagan people. Faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. We should not be shocked at an unbelieving world full of unfaithful people. But we should be shocked at Christians who are unfaithful. Gentleness. Some of us have to seek the Spirit for more of that. I'm one of those. Gentleness is not my natural gifting. Self-control. You have self-control? You have that mastered? Never say a word that you don't intend to say. Jesus did a lot of miracles, didn't he? I mean, he fed thousands with a couple of loaves and fishes. He told a lame man, just get up and start walking, and he did. Spit on his hands, got some dirt, put it on a blind man's eyes, and the, the man started seeing. And the big one, Lazarus, come forth! A dead man who'd been dead for four days comes out of the tomb... I mean, he did some amazing things, but I'll tell you, I, I think the hardest thing for me to believe is that Jesus lived a sinless life. Existentially, in my heart, in my being, I mean, I can, I can somehow fathom someone having the power to raise a man from the dead. What I can't really fathom is a man who never said words he didn't intend to say. A man who never had thoughts he shouldn't think. It, it, It boggles my mind to consider that that's possible. Every thought, every action, every word in complete control. That was Jesus. How did he do that? By the power of God's Spirit. That same Spirit indwells you and me. We don't have to have a loose tongue. We don't have to let our mind wander everywhere. We don't have to do things we shouldn't do. The Spirit of God has the power to give us control of ourself. I am not sinless, and I've never known a sinless person. Theoretically, by the power of the Spirit, we can overcome every temptation. Spirit of God is capable of giving us his fruit. We believe this, right? We believe in sanctification in the New Covenant theology? We, when we talk about Jesus is, or God is conforming us in the, the likeness of Jesus, is that just a not yet thing? Or do we actually believe that he is forming Christ in us? Holiness, something we should be pursuing with a passion as the Spirit of God reforms us. First, well, the end of verse 23, against such things there is no law. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Judaizers. Now those who are of Christ, those who belong to Christ Jesus have Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice he doesn't say they should crucify the flesh. He doesn't say they will crucify the flesh. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have put it on the cross with Jesus Christ. You are not in the flesh if you are a Christian. Paul says it unequivocally. You are not in the flesh. That flesh is dead, crucified with Christ. That belongs to the old realm. We are in the new realm. Risen and empowered by the Spirit of God, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. same analogy Paul uses in Romans 6, right? Jesus died physically. You in Christ die spiritually. Jesus was raised physically. You in Christ rise spiritually to newness of life. Therefore, do not go on presenting your members as slaves of sin. You can't do it because you died to that realm. And we're raised to this one. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We don't walk by the law. We don't walk in the flesh because we're not in the flesh. We walk by the Spirit of the living God. I'm really passionate about this, this not just theologically. It matters, of course, theologically. You've got to get the covenants right. You've got to get the testaments right. You've got to understand these things. And we have a lot to throw at our Reformed brothers because they get it all mixed up at times. And and that all matters. Truth matters. But it matters very, very practically. I deal with people all the time. I'm sure some of you, maybe all of you do too. I deal with people all the time who come to see me because they're struggling against sin. Pornography. Anger. I just can't stop yelling at my wife. Can't stop yelling at my kids. Substances, you know. In Colorado, marijuana is legal. It's coming. You're welcome. And I can't tell you how many people I have given biblical counsel to who have heard from this passage in Romans seven. You know, we're just like Apostle Paul. We have this battle raging. And even Paul said, I want to do it, but I can't do it. How is someone going to overcome temptation if they're convinced, we got this flesh hanging around and there's nothing we can do. We just sort of have to limp along until we get glorified. Where's the hope in that? Where's the power in that? I take them to Romans 6, 7, and 8. I take them to to Galatians 5, and I say, no, you are not in that realm. You're in this realm. He has given you the power to overcome. You can overcome. You never have to look at that thing you shouldn't be looking at. You don't have to do that ever again. There's grace and forgiveness. We start there. The hope of the gospel, the forgiveness in Christ. We start there to make sure they understand the gospel. They say, but coming along with the death of Christ is his resurrection, and that includes his spirit. Remember when Jesus was with the apostles and he says, I'm leaving you? And you think, and he says, that's a good thing. In fact, it's better for you that I'm leaving? Like, how is that possible? What we long for is to be with him, right? And Jesus says, it's better for you that I'm out of here. What? No, because I have to go in order to send the Spirit. It is better for you that I am not here with you bodily so I can send my Spirit. Why? Because that Spirit is going to empower you to obey me. Please don't tell your people. Please don't tell yourself You are just in the flesh until the day you die, and you can't overcome. That's a lie from the pit. You're not in that realm. We have crucified the flesh. It's dead. We're still tempted, but we have the Spirit of God to give us victory. Very, very practical, daily, important theology here. Break free, stay free in the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled when we realize that none of us walk in the Spirit to such a degree that we overcome every single temptation. I'm sure none of us would be so arrogant as to say that we do. Oh, Lord, don't let us go the other way and become so pessimistic and unbelieving that we let the enemy of our souls accuse us and distract us and make us think we're slaves to sin when we are free. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that this would not only be theologically accurate, but existentially true that we would walk in the Spirit and the freedom that Christ brought and that we would manifest the fruit of the Spirit because you are worthy of our holy, righteous living and the world needs to see a difference in us. So for his glory, for our good, I ask, may we walk by your Spirit.
1: Amen. Thank you, Brother Doug. So, well, Pastor Gary Scott, would you mind coming up and saying a couple of words about um, Paul Carston? <clears throat> Excuse me. Before we break for lunch here at the church.
2: Yeah, I was uh, uh before the conference is over, I didn't get that done today. I'm trying to pull up the things on here and I don't have the the Wi-Fi password, but I'd like to give you some information that we put out about Paul. Some of you may remember 2 years ago Paul Karsten was here. Paul Karsten is a native uh, South African who's trained in Toronto Seminary. Uh, he has for 22 years taught at uh, uh Cape Town Bible College, I don't remember exactly, uh, but it's a a major Bible college right there in Cape Town, South Africa. And about two years ago, he became convinced that the rural pastors in the area they called townships, uh, which were, as a result of apartheid, All of the poor uh, blacks were kind of placed there. So it's been very, very difficult for them. And he has a heart to reach those. Most of those pastors don't have training. They can't afford to go to a Bible college. They can't pay the tuition if they could find the time. So the burden of his heart is to take the training to them. And so his plan, he has a team of about five people that he's working with uh, to go into those areas. In fact, they were supposed to have a conference last week, but I don't know, I don't think that happened because the funds were not yet uh, available to do that. And when they do these training sessions, they have to pay for the transportation, for the food, for the lodging, because they simply can't do that. And one of the things that uh, really drew my heart to Paul, I had actually met him earlier, but this was the first time I got to know him, uh, is uh, uh, his new covenant orientation. And he said, we, we are living in an area, we can't really use reformed in South Africa because it's tainted with the, you know, the apartheid and, and, and some of the history of the reform movement there. And he said, we want this to be a new covenant ministry, but it's constantly, it's a source of, of contention given the, the things that are there. And so I wanted to make the new covenant people here in the states aware of him. He, uh, he was trained at Toronto. Uh, he has, I think, two or three churches that support him, uh, and uh, uh, most people are not aware of him. And I said, I have a heart for this, but I'm not a fundraiser. You know, I, I'm not good with that kind of thing, and so I'm not a fundraiser. But I'd like to make people aware of the ministry and help develop partners for him that will pray for him and the work that's being done. And so my heart has been to, to, to encourage people to prayerfully support that work and financially as they're able for two years. Not a lifetime commitment, but to give them a couple of years to get started with this. And uh, and so we have uh, uh, two or three uh, different uh, uh, churches or ministries that are committed to do that, some that are uh, uh, praying about that now, but I just wanted to make you aware of that. Uh, Our plans were for me to go there last year to actually see this on the ground. Uh, I was not able to do that given the COVID. Uh, I've talked at length to uh, Greg Van Court and Dayspring Fellowship, they've supported, Paul Karsten for many years. And then uh, there's a church uh, in uh, in Wisconsin Trying to remember the name uh, doesn't come to me offhand. Uh, that have supported him for many years. They've had two of their elders, their leaders, that have made multiple trips there. You know, so this is not one of these things that I haven't been there, but I know the people that I trust. And so I want to commend that to you. Uh, to ask you uh, to pray for them. Uh, to uh, uh, for them to do this ministry they need to raise, they need to develop a funding of about $1,500 a month to enable them to do this. This is not for him personally, not for his support, but just for this ministry, and so I just wanted to to say to you, we are personally committed to that. Uh, we have given to that, as by God's grace, we continue to do that. And uh, I, I spoke to Pastor uh, uh, Bill Sasser a couple of weeks ago, and he said, "Yes, you know, we we see this as something that would be really good." So I just want to commend that to you uh, and ask you to pray for him. And I will get to Zach the uh, the file so that we can print that out and you can uh, learn more about him Uh, and so if we could can we take just a moment and and pray uh, and ask for God to fund that work one of the things that I'm very encouraged about and I've said to him I don't think the answer for this is long-term funding from the United States You know, you need to get that established there. And so there's a group called uh, Teaching Leaders International, Training Leaders International. Uh, I think it's out of Bethlehem Baptist Church originally. He's now connecting with them and trying to build a network there. And so I'm very encouraged about that. Uh, I think that will help him. They have an expertise that I don't have, probably none of us here have, that can help him do that. And so he really seems to be headed in the right direction direction Uh, uh, we were hoping we would be able to do a video feed in and it just didn't work out from both ends Uh, but hopefully at some point you will get to hear him some of you may have met him the last time but let's take a moment and uh, just pray and ask God to provide uh, for that ministry that those uh, pastors can be trained that are going to uh, hear the very things that we heard this morning from Renee and from uh, Doug and the things that we've heard throughout the week. So let's pray together. Father, we stand before you today and we are confident that Uh, Ministry is not something that we generate on our own. You've told us to pray that the Lord of the harvest would thrust out uh, workers into his harvest field. And so we come to you today to pray for your direction, uh, for Paul and for his team there in Cape Town, South Africa. We pray that you would provide uh, the resources financially, that you would uh, provide the people that can pray uh, and intercede for that ministry. We pray that uh, through uh, TLI or other uh, groups that they can come alongside and uh, help them uh, develop uh, an effective ministry that will work in their cultural context. So we commit them to you. I pray, Father, for encouragement. I pray that uh, with the load and the weight and the challenge that have been there that are so much worse with the COVID, I pray that they'll be able to get through that and that the effect of this will be that the gospel goes forth clearly, uh, that pastors can be well-trained, that well trained that will be able to take the word of God and enjoy the feast that we've enjoyed all week here. Uh, And so we ask, Lord, that you would move our hearts uh, to honor you and how you lead us to respond, whether it's prayer or encouragement or financial support. I pray, Lord, uh, for your encouragement to Paul and to the ministry there in South Africa of training leaders and pastors in those very poor churches uh, in the townships that he's spoken to me about. Lord, we trust you and we ask you to accomplish the purpose that you have to advance your kingdom, even through the ministry of Paul Karsten uh, and his fellow workers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Zach.
1: Just two more reminders before we break for lunch. So if, you, if any of our guests watching over the internet, if you have any questions, you can Feel free to uh, look up info at ptinct.org and you can email the questions for tomorrow's uh, question and answer panel. And of course, any of you who are physically present, you don't have to turn them in to me, but you feel more, uh, feel very welcome to do so or to David Leon, the questions for tomorrow's question and answer panel. Also, there are also two tables with books in the conference room. So some are books from Grace Church. And then others are books from Dr. Gary Long and Blake White. So feel free, if, if you are so inclined, you may purchase those. Yes, Pastor Sasser.